Dive. I'm Lucas, aka Chrono Kirby, and this is the place for musings on cryptography, technology, and when Technicolor was introduced in the movies. I guess on this episode, I'd like to talk a bit about Tornado Cash. Uh, that's a somewhat topical subject, but I think one that's important for privacy in general, and also touches on quite a few other topics that I wanted to get to in this podcast. First of all, what is Tornado Cash and why do I want to talk about it? Well, Tornado Cash is, or maybe was, a mixing service on Ethereum. So the idea was that you could uh, put in Ethereum into this service and then withdraw it, and there wouldn't be a way to link your deposits from your withdrawals. And this became popular for money laundering, because after hacks, what you'd often see is uh, somebody hacked some kind of contract, and so they had a bunch of funds that were stolen. They'd quickly deposit them into Tornado, and then that would be sort of the end of it, because you wouldn't be able to trace them after that. Well, you'd see people withdrawing, but you wouldn't be able to link them uh, to the initial deposits. And, of course, there were a bunch of people using it for other reasons related to privacy. And the reason why I'm talking about it now, because this service has existed for, I think, several years, is that it was sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury, <laughs> I think, uh, Monday. And that had some pretty interesting consequences, and I think is probably the most uh, severe action taken against a smart contract so far, I think, in the history of crypto. So that was a very momentous decision, so I felt like something worth talking about. So what, what exactly happened? So the U.S. Treasury sort of maintains a list of sanctioned businesses and banks and persons. And the idea is that if you're on this list, you're in trouble. And if you deal with people or entities on this list, you're also in trouble. So banks all across the world and banks of the U.S. or with U.S. customers especially have to basically stop all business dealings with entities that get sanctioned and get put on this SDN list. In fact, what's interesting, if you read the, the sort of FAQ about this, not only do like banks and stuff have to comply with this, but also U.S. citizens like myself. So like, you know, in theory, if I were to just privately transact with someone on the SDN list, that would be bad. <laughs> that would be, that would be, uh, you know, open me up to criminal, I think, is it criminal prosecution? I think it's at least civil prosecution. You can get fined for not cooperating with the sanctions list. Uh, there are obviously, you know, legitimate reasons why this kind of list exists. For example, uh, Russia has has been sanctioned this year, so there's, there's some probably high-profile individuals which are on the SDN list, I think. Another uh, big source of SDN listers uh, is tourism uh, and stuff like that. So definitely not, not a list you want to be on. Or... Although I guess once you're on the list, you might, you know, compare like how high you are on it. It's like a bragging rights kind of thing. Anyhow, 
Tornado Cash was placed on this list. Which is kind of interesting because Tornado Cash isn't like a business or a person. I kind of made a joke tweet about this, you know. Imagine the the Treasury interrogating somebody called Mr. Tornado Cash. You know. First name Tornado, last name Cash. That's sort of how it, it's, it, it seems like it, they think it works. Uh, it doesn't really work like that. And in fact, it's yeah, a good segue. I think I, I want to, in this episode, take a sort of bottom-up approach. You know, explaining what exactly smart contracts are, how Tornado Cash works, to sort of explain the context a bit better, and then talk about what I, th what I think about this decision and about, you know, regulation of, of privacy coins and stuff in, in general. So, how does Tornado Cash work? Uh, so, I explained before, but to recap, the way Tornado Cash works is that you deposit uh, your balance into this could be a smart contract, and then you can withdraw later. And when you withdraw, there's no link between deposits and withdrawals. So, if you deposit with one address and withdraw with another, there's no way to link those two things together. All you know is the set of people which deposited stuff into the contract and the set of people which withdrew. So, just from an abstract point of view, the anonymity of this mixer basically grows as the number of people using it increases. So if a lot of people are using it, then it's it's quite anonymous because you, there's a lot of different people it could be. It's just two people using it, you know that you're one of those two people. And you might get into trouble if like you're the only person in a specific area using it or something like that. Kind of how people get caught using Tor because they're just the only person using it uh, in some campus or something like that. And I guess to simplify the, the working model of how you'd implement Tornado Cash, um, to make it simpler, it's it's easier if you just allow deposits of a single unit at a time. So you can only deposit like 1 ETH or 0.1 ETH or some other unit currency. This makes it much easier because then it you don't need us to sort of privately keep track of how much you've deposited. And it should be noted that this this kind of correlation, even just looking at the system as a black box, could de-anonymize de you. Well, that's kind of hard to pronounce. So you could lose your anonymity in this way, because if I deposit, you know, 1,027 in, and then I withdraw 1,027 out with a, a different address at around the same time, you might hazard a guess that it's the same person doing that. And even if I break it up into 1,027 one-unit chunks, just by observing sort of the amount of traffic, even if I split it up amongst different addresses, you, you might make that determination too. So that's sort of an aspect of anonymity, the metadata stuff, which isn't even covered by Tornado Cash. Anyways, I should really get into it. So how does Tornado Cash work? So you have these deposits of one unit, which I'll call coins. So basically each coin is worth the same amount. And so the way it works is that uh, I deposit my unit of value and I basically get a coin assigned to me. And then later I can spend a coin and get that value out of the contract in whatever currency is used on the chain. Or this could be like a service that's sort of external. So maybe I, I deposit an actual dollar and I get a sort of coin, and then I can withdraw a dollar by burning a coin. And so one 
one sort of way of doing this is like without any privacy is you just have a list of, of coins. Anytime someone deposits a dollar, you mint a new coin. Maybe it's just a random string. Say, okay, here's your coin. And then when they want to spend it, what you need to do is you need to look at the list of all coins that exist. You need to check that the coin they have is in the list and that it hasn't been spent or withdrawn before. So you can have two lists. One list which has all the coins that have been minted, another which has all the coins that have been spent or withdrawn, and you basically check that the coin is in the minted list and that it's not in the spent list. And then if that's the case, you add it to the spent list and then give the person their money. And when you deposit, you just mint a new coin, add it to the minted list. And so a system like this uh, works perfectly fine. It just doesn't have any privacy. So to get privacy, what you'd want is you want to sort of unlink uh, depositing and receiving a coin from withdrawing it. So one thing we're going to do is, is instead of having a coin present as is inside of both the set of minted coins and the set of spent coins, we're going to instead add sort of a layer of indirection. So a coin is going to be, say, a random string, and then we're going to use two hash functions. One hash function is going to give us an identifier for the pile of minted coins, and the other hash function, let's call it hash b in contrast to hash a. So hash b is going to give us an identifier to use for the list of, of coins that have been spent, and we call these nullifiers. So like you have your coin, you can get sort of an ID to put in this list of, of coins that have been minted, and a nullifier, which you also generate from your, your private seed, and the nullifier list keeps track of, of which coins have been spent. So if you, if you do this system, we have a random string, or seed, and you use the seed to derive both a coin, which goes into the list of minted coins, and a nullifier, which you can use to spend, then that's sort of one layer of indirection, Now, you still want some kind of linkability, so, and you want some kind of integrity, because with this layer of indirection, before you could tell that the coin that existed, you basically, you could tell that there's this sim singular, you know, one same coin that existed both in the list of minted coins and that wasn't yet in the dollar list. Now that we have these two identifiers, even if they're derived from the same seed, you can't tell that. And that's the point, but it means that you can't, you know, tell that the coin was minted and that it wasn't spent. So the way you get around this is with zero-knowledge proofs, which I ended up actually explaining in my last episode. So the idea here is that you can prove something about your, your private seed and thus your coins without actually revealing anything. So what you prove is that you know this seed such that hash A gives you a coin which is in the list, and hash b gives you a nullifier. And actually, what you do is you, is you reveal the nullifier, since it's not linked at all to the, to the list of coins which exist. So you just reveal the nullifier, and you say, oh, I know a secret seed such that uh, the hash a of this seed is in the list. I'm not going to tell you where, but I'm going to prove that it's in the list somewhere. And hash b of the same seed is equal to this public nullifier, which I've just given you. And then you can just check manually outside of the proof that the nullifier hasn't been seen before. 
And if that's uh, the case, you allow the withdrawal to happen. And in terms of proving that your coin is in the list in a, in a proof, well, one simple way to do it is that you sort of create this, this bigger and bigger proof as the list grows larger where you prove that it's it's either the first one or it's the second one or the third one, etc. Uh, the problem is that this, this, first of all, you need like a different circuit as the list changes because you need to add more stuff to the circuit where you're saying, oh, now it's not the seventh one, or, well, you're saying it might be the seventh one or the eighth one, and if I add, you know, coin number thousand, I need to add a constraint to my circuit which says, or I know uh, a seed such that the coin associated with the seed is coin number a thousand. And a lot of ZK proof systems, which are succinct, so snarks, uh, don't really work well if you have to change the circuit a lot. So you want kind of a fixed circuit. And so for that reason, also for the efficiency reasons, you instead organize the coins into uh, a kind of accumulator set in the abstract sense. In practice, you use a Merkle tree. And so the idea is that the complexity of proving just becomes logarithmic. So it doesn't increase very fast as you add more coins. And also, I think the way it works is that you have a fixed size tree to begin with, and you just have sort of like empty, empty coins or like some kind of placeholder values that you replace. So the idea is that when you deposit, you basically create a new, a new coin from your private seed, and that's public, and you sort of insert it into the tree. And then with a Merkle tree, you can create a, a proof by just sort of providing a list of values which gives you sort of a path walking from your coin up to the to the root. And then in circuit, what you do is you prove that sort of if you hash these things correctly, you arrive at the root value, which is public. And this allows you to prove it's kind of expensive to do these hashes inside of the circuit, but it's still much more feasible than individually checking each of the items in the list. So to recap, you have a private seed. Uh, one hash gives you a coin. Another hash gives you a nullifier. Uh, to deposit, you deposit money into the smart contract. This allows you to insert a coin into the list of coins which have been minted. And then to the withdrawal, you prove that you know a private seed such that the coin associated with that seed is inside the list via a proof that you also verify inside your circuit. And you also keep hidden to not reveal where it is. As well as that... There's a nullifier, which you've revealed prior, which corresponds to the seed. And then the contract manually checks that this nullifier hasn't been spent before, and if so, gives you your money and records the fact that this nullifier has now been spent, so you can't withdraw the same coin twice. Now, I talked about sort of the system or the contract. Um, so one way to, to do this would be as like a centralized service that somebody runs. So I could have a service over the internet where I accept credit cards or PayPal, whatever. You give me a dollar, I will let you modify the state that I record in my database. And then when you withdraw, I can, I'll give you back a dollar if you, if you can give me this proof. And this prevents me from getting cheated out of, out, out of sort of my deposits because I want people to trust my system. Uh, the problem is that I sort of have to maintain control over this sort of database myself and maybe people don't trust me to do that. Or maybe people don't trust me to, to actually verify the proofs myself. You know, maybe I'm gonna try and cheat to try and withdraw extra money. 
after people have gained trust in the system, so that's kind of bad. So instead of having a single person holding this database, this is where sort of a blockchain comes in. So the idea is that by having a contract on a blockchain, you can have a sort of de decentralized maintenance of this state of the contract, and the state being the, the set of minted coins and the set of nullifiers. And so by having a smart contract, essentially every single person participating in the blockchain protocol has a copy of the state on their machine. So this is the ideal model where everybody's running full notes, uh, but that's a conversation for another day. So basically everybody on their computer uh, that's maintaining this sort of Ethereum blockchain, somewhere on their computer, they have the state for this specific contract. And whenever a transaction happens that touches the contract, they basically verify that, you know, transaction has the right signatures and they basically execute the contract's code themselves and update the state accordingly. So basically everybody sort of maintains this, the, this record of the minted coins and the nullifier set. And this allows everybody to agree that, you know, this coin was created and it got into the, into the, into the list of minted coins. And this person sent, you know, this amount of, of money to the contract and then withdrew this amount of money from the contracts where you agree sort of how much money they have on the ambient chain. And what's interesting is that it's sort of, uh, there's no single like entity that, that exists. Nobody's running the service. Everybody is in some sense. There is a single contract that's how Ethereum works. There's like a place where you can send money to interact with the contract. But essentially when you do that, what happens is that everybody ha calculates what happens when you do this and updates their state locally. And the end, everybody sort of agrees because everybody's sort of synchronized. So the state is replicated across many machines, but there's no singular actor maintaining this, this service. Uh, now, now in practice, the, the way it actually sort of works is that you don't, uh, you don't, you know, send peer-to-peer -peer transactions to, to directly update this. Instead, most people ended up interacting with Ethereum Cash via a website. So when you're on the website, what instead happens is that instead of running your own node, you go through a third-party service provider, which lets you, you know, send requests to people running nodes. Uh, and most of the time you use like Infura or some kind of service like that. So the website had JavaScript code where like you could have a browser extension containing your wallet, which which contains your, your keys used for signing, and you could sort of sign a transaction and then send it off to Infura, who's a third-party central service, and they would send it off to actual nodes, and then eventually it would get minted or mined, and that would update everybody's state, and then Infura would tell you, oh yeah, the state got updated, uh, and the UI on the website could, could say, oh yeah, congratulations, you have, you know, this coin that got minted, you know, save the seed somewhere, <laughs> and then use it later. And I guess that, that brings us to the consequences of the sanctions. So I guess one of the first things that happened was the site tornado.cash got taken down. I don't know if that was at the domain name level or that was just the hosting provider or if they just took it down themselves. So you can't access, at least via that link, uh, the code for the site. And really the, the interesting thing is the code for the site is really just like a, a UI to do these requests. Uh, in theory, you could run this code on your computer and, and broadcast transactions uh, to nodes running the blockchain protocol or Ethereum. Uh, and then another thing is that uh, 
throw this on Twitter, so take it with a grain of salt, but I think Infura is sort of manually blocking requests to this specific contract, at least deployed at the address it was deployed at. So if you try and just in your wallet do an RPC request via Infura that has this kind of transaction, it'll, it'll block it. So that was another consequence. And there was another whole series of, of consequences, which I think for the most part weren't actually court ordered, but most are precautionary. So GitHub, which hosts uh, source code, took down the code for the contracts in Trado Cache and also deleted uh, the accounts of several of the de developers, which in my opinion is going way too far. Uh, take the code down, that's, that's, I think that's questionable, but, but reasonable, but deleting the developer's accounts entirely, I guess is, I mean, if I were GitHub, that would kind of make sense. It's really covering your, your tail, but it's certainly a very rash measure, and I'm not sure to what extent it's necessary. Also, this is this is more of like a paralegal thing or super legal, because it's it's pretty clear. I'm not a lawyer, but it it should be relatively robust that you do have the rights to disseminate, for example, code explaining how to implement Trinidad Cache, or even just implementing it as as code itself. And that's because of the, the First Amendment, so it falls under free speech rights. Likewise, you're allowed to make podcasts explaining how Tornado Cash works. I'm pretty, I'm much more certain of that, too. Uh, the question is, are companies obliged to host your podcasts and your source code? And I think the case is actually no. So it's, a, it's, it's, it's bad from a sort of maybe moral perspective in terms of free speech, but from a legal perspective, there's no issue with companies making that decision themselves, at least with the current regulatory environment. And I think this kind of illustrates the sort of difficulty of pinning a person down. Like, there are a lot of actions taken, but unlike with other sanctioned things, it's, it's sort of less clear which ones were necessary and which ones weren't because of the decentralized nature of what Tornado Cash was. I mean, it's a contract that basically everybody runs by virtue of running a node participating in Ethereum. And there's also a whole plethora of other contracts that everybody's running. That's sort of how it works. Everybody's running all of these contracts that run on Ethereum. That's sort of why, you know, it's slow because <laughs> everybody has to run all this stuff. <laughs> uh, so th there's no like one person you can sanction and get taken down. I think part of the confusion is that the model of, of smart contracts makes it so that it seems like there's cent this central entity. And it's true that you can like pin down a specific address where the contractor is running and say, okay, well now any any money flowing out of this address is you know tainted. It's as if you receive money from like a sanctioned uh, bank account, bank account or terrorist, you know. But on the other hand, there's there's no single person running this. Like everybody's sort of running the service. That that's what makes it tricky. There's also like a bit of FUD. I don't know to what extent like the contagion will spread. So for example, if you tornado cash some money to a different address and then you want to withdraw that that money on that address into fiat, I think some centralized exchanges might end up blocking that uh, and even might uh, be doing several ops of analysis. So there are firms like Chain Analysis, uh, I think it's Chain Analysis or something like that which specialize in doing this kind of tracking on Ethereum, 
because outside of mixer services like this, Ethereum isn't private at all. So once you've withdrawn from Tornado Cash to your address, if you do no more transactions from there on, you can sort of track the flow of currency. And so you can sort of detect contagion like this. And so if, if, if the stance ends up being taken that, you know, any money coming out of Tornado Cash is just completely non grata, I think that would be pretty consequential. And on, on the other hand, I, I, I do want to kind of sympathize with the Treasury here in that a lot of the funds in Tornado Cash were the result of, of frauds or, or hacks uh, and perhaps even uh, malicious actors from like North, North Korea or something. I'm, I don't know if I can really confirm that, but that seems plausible to me. And yeah... My thoughts on that are general is like, well, criminals will use privacy tools the same way, you know, your average drill will. Uh, criminals use cash and people use cash too. Criminals use encrypted messaging services and so do ordinary people. Just because criminals use something for privacy doesn't mean that law-abiding citizens shouldn't be allowed to use something for privacy. And I think what one difficult thing is that there's the the regulatory tools we have just really aren't adapted to this environment. I've I've talked like you know seven times this podcast so far about how it's it's this decentralized service. So like sanctioning it as if it were a single bank or a single person just doesn't make much sense. And so it's it's like fitting a square peg into a round hole. And I I yeah. I don't think it's the best way of accomplishing the outcomes you want either, because I think a lot of sort of ordinary people are going to get hurt, especially by the more so by the precedent this sets rather than general cash specifically. So one concern is that if you have an entire privacy chain like Zcash or Ironfish or something like that, where instead of just having this centralized mixer point, you instead have the entire chain where all the transactions are private. You know, is the entire chain going to get sanctioned like this at some point? Because you say, well, you know, people can transact, criminals can transact on the chain privately, so we need to sanction the entire thing. With a mixer service, it's a lot more like clear cut, because even if it's sort of this decentralized contract, it's it's like a thing, you know. It's the way the mixer works is that you put in you put money in and you can withdraw money out without linking the two. So it's it's sort of this very clear money laundering kind of functionality. And that's what a lot of people have been calling it. Whereas with the privacy chain, it's it's a bit more nuanced because like there's no laundering. It's it's all staying in the wash. It's never <laughs> it's never going in and out of the washing machine. It's always always washing. Uh, that analogy works. And another interesting thing is that by having you know centralized service providers like a, a website which you can use to access, it also creates this sort of veneer of like a person running a service like you can actually target the website whereas if like inside of your wallet you would interact with contracts it'd be much more difficult to sanction uh to, to have a website be taken down because there is no website it's just everybody in their wallet on their computer is is interacting with the contract directly there's no third per party service and there wouldn't also be like an rpc service like infura which could block transactions to a specific contract ideally and I think, I guess one, one thing I'd like to touch upon, perhaps to end the episode, it's a final topic, is 
where I'd like to see regulation going. So, I mean, as I mentioned before, there is a need to, you know, be able to prevent, you know, sanctioned entities from transacting, or at least it, there should be a way if you're trying to comply with these kinds of, of laws to prove that you haven't transacted in this way. And there should be a way to demonstrate, you know, good provenance of funds. For example, let's say I'm on, I'm on this, you know, privacy coin where all the transactions are private. I want to prove to the government that, you know, I received this money because my employer paid me. Uh, that's sort of so-called, you know, white money or whatever. Well, right now, first of all, we don't even have the technological tools to do it directly. In theory, what you could do is you could, you could sort of say, well, you know, these are a list of sources which are registered with the government. They have like an employee tax identifier and whatnot. And I can prove the government, you know, all the funds I received to this address this year were from the, these validated sources. And I could prove that without revealing anything more. I could even just prove that they are from some validated sources without specifying which ones. And I think that kind of use case is the future I'd like us to evolve towards, where you can have both privacy and regulatory compliance, because there is a legitimate need for governance, governments to be able to regulate finance uh, to help you know, prevent crime and to help you know, prevent frauds. I mean, that's a totally legitimate use case for regulation. It's just that right now we have this big hammer where we say, I'm going to remove your ability to have any privacy because I need to see a few details about what's happening. There's no way to say, I want to just prove that nothing fishy is going on, you know, and nothing else. There's, ideally, that's, that's how it works. You'd say, I prove that all the, the funds I have are legitimate. I'm not going to tell you how they're legitimate, just proving to you that they are. I'm going to prove that, you know, I paid my taxes correctly without proving to you how much I necessarily own or from which sources, as long as they're legitimate. And th this kind of, of situation would would sort of be the best of both worlds, because you'd have as much, you'd have basically as, as much privacy as you can, and insofar as the government needs to regulate and perhaps audit people, you'd provide the minimum amount of information necessary. You just give them a proof that reveals exactly the few bits of information they need and nothing else. And one problem I see in getting us towards this future is that there's not a lot of good communication between regulatory offices and the technologists working on this stuff. And I think there really needs to be collaboration between the two. We need regulators which understand how the technology works because if they keep applying old models to it, it's just going to end up with disproportionate actions, either tar targeting the wrong services or applying frameworks which just don't make sense or creating a lot of needless collateral harm. And on the other side of the coin, if technologists try and completely shun the government, you might just risk end up creating services which are useless because uh, if I have this privacy coin, that's great and all, but if if <laughs> if using it means that I can't get a mortgage in my house because I'm I'm sanctioned, or <laughs> you know I get I get uh, I get banned from entering into the United States as a tourist because I use this privacy coin, you know that's uh, that's not ideal either. You want you want a privacy system that people use, you know. That's what's great about about things like Signal is that it's it's gone to the point of adoption where like you couldn't just eliminate Signal. Like uh, the U.S. Treasury couldn't say, "Well, we're going to sanction Signal." <laughs> Although maybe that's sort of why I was sort of skeptical of them adding mobile payments 
with crypto, I think a year or two ago, because it sort of opens up this kind of action by different agencies. Because, uh, you know, maybe the Treasury could sanction Signal for allowing money laundering because it uses this privacy coin. I'm sort of speculating there, but... So, anyhow, Tornado Cash. Big happenings. Uh, definitely a bad situation all around. But I think there's hope. We have the technological tools, zero-knowledge proofs, and other privacy technologies to achieve both privacy and regulatory compliance. And if we can just get people talking and get regulators and technologists collaborating then I think we can make the world a better place. And with that, this was The Cold Dive, and I'll see you on the next one. Bye.